Hi there. Just letting you know that this is part one of a two-part episode on Mexico 86. Part two will be out shortly, and then we'll be back in our regular rotation with Belgium versus Ireland. Enjoy. Jack Charlton. Hello again and welcome back to Back to Jack, our game-by-game celebration of the Jack Charlton era, where uh, myself, John Breslin, Turlock Kelly and Dave Donnelly uh, explore a glorious period of uh, our childhood, maybe try and uh, create some memories or or relive some of the the good memories uh, of our youth. Um, How are you doing? Any updates, Dave, since we last spoke? No, uh, n- nothing's really changed. I guess just uh, I've just been taken in 1986 and enjoying everything, watching a bit of Rocky, a bit of Back to the Future, and just uh, soaking everything in. Good stuff, immersing yourself. Turlock, what have you been doing? With how long have we been off? It feels like a, a half a year or something. It's a, a good few months, but I think the after the excitement of of winning an international tournament, I think we all needed that that little uh, that little hiatus to to calm down a little bit. I'm really looking forward to this. World Cup, obviously a shame the Republic aren't there, but um, the media coverage, including in Ireland, is is wall to wall on this. And um, this is a real media phenomenon that's going to be absolutely inescapable for, for everyone uh, over the next four weeks. We can give a quick summary of uh, Own Hands Republic's failed attempt at qualification now as well. Aaron's away record, of course, in the World Championship is very poor to say the least. In 50 years, only three away wins. Eklund back to Jakobsen, and they're going to get a touch, but it's in the net. Here's Potasov. Potasov pulls it wide, and it's in the net. It's in the net, and the Soviet Union has scored. Lovely play, got Smanov. And Why was the World Cup happening in Mexico? Um, do you know that one, Turlock? Because it had been in Mexico in 1970, and it was due to be somewhere else in '86. It was, yeah. There was kind of this informal arrangement that the World Cup would swap between Europe and the Americas. And this was very much the Americas' turn after um, the Spanish World Cup of 1982. So the initial award was to Colombia uh, in, I think, the mid-1970s. But that became a real political football in Colombia. Obviously, it was a very kind of unstable period in that country's history. Uh, It was eventually decided, particularly when FIFA expanded the tournament to 24 teams, um, that Colombia, the Colombian government didn't want to take on the financial burden uh, of of hosting a, a World Cup. So with just a, just a few years notice, um, the tournament effectively went back out to tender. Uh, and as you say, Mexico had only hosted it in 1970, but they put themselves forward um, to host again. The United States and Canada also went forward uh, as potential hosts. Uh, Henry, Henry Kissinger, funnily enough, spearheaded the the US bid, uh, he was extremely keen on it, but uh, this was one of the few 
international affairs in which he didn't get his way in the 1980s because it was decided you know Mexico had the infrastructure it had the fans um, it had the support it had the football culture uh, and so a decision was made to bring it back to Mexico just 16 years after 1970. There's a huge amount of coverage ahead of the tournament as well in Ireland uh, in papers and on TV. Um, there's going to be 36 games broadcast live on RTE, which does kind of give a light to the, to the idea that, that football was a minority sport in Ireland before Jack. Um, RTE's coverage as well will feature the already divisive figure, Eamon Dunphy. Um, but Eamon has his own views as well on the state of punditry. He got to, to indulge himself in a, an article um, in his, I guess, regular column in the Sunday Endo. Uh, where he gets to rate a lot of the pundits that are going to be on uh, BBC, UTV and RT. There was one little bit in that, I don't know if you saw it, lads. Uh, he might have been joking. I don't know where John Giles and his relationship was at at this point, but uh, he describes John as not even a bit articulate at one point in the article. And also to check in on George Best, which we, we must do now every every podcast. Uh, Eamon's take on him is a great player and a decent man, which might may be brought into question. Um, but uh, yeah, unlikely to be as bland as Kevin Keegan, but not renowned for his tactical perception. Any other takes on uh, what's going to be coming up on the punditry side of things, lads? Yeah, I think that remark about, about John Giles is very much uh, tongue-in-cheek, as he will be sitting beside him for much of the of the coming month. Um, yeah, he doesn't he doesn't hold back on you know his his contempt for British punditry and for the 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 tone of British um, football coverage. Uh, he he quotes that famous uh, remark by Duncan McKenzie about Kevin Keegan describing him as the as the Julie Andrews of, of football. Now, when anything bothers me and I'm feeling unhappy, I just try and think of nice things. Uh, he says uh, Keegan is the quintessential TV expert. He says nothing convincingly. He is nice looking and popular with the public. He's folksy, the boy next door. His analysis of the game will offend nobody, nor will you be enlightened. I thought I, I thought it was interesting his assessment of Bobby Charlton, um, a great player and a gentleman. The last criticism and analysis is the distinctly ungentleman, ungentlemanly business around World Cup time. It is in fact no work for great men, and it's just interesting you make that comment about Bobby considering he's, I suppose he, he's already formed his opinion of Jack, and uh, I suppose his opinion of Bobby is in some ways kind of a I don't know a counterpoint to how he feels about Jack. Yeah, and he had um, he got a couple of mentions of Brian Clough's prejudice as well, uh, which I'm not sure exactly what prejudice of Brian Clough's he's on about. I don't think Clough was short of prejudice anyway. Yeah, you could take your pick. Okay, well that's enough uh, hearing what Eamon thinks about the pundits. Let's actually get on to the football in the World Cup. Um, we've each taken a couple of the groups to, to run you through uh, the teams in them. Okay, so Group A had Italy. They've qualified as the holders, but they've had a rough couple of years since uh, since winning it in '82. They had a very, I think we touched on it before. They had a very bad '82, '83 season, and then they they didn't get to the Euros in '84. So while they're the holders, they're not too hotly tipped. Uh, they've got Argentina in their group as well, which would be one of the favourites for sure. Um, they qualified directly with a late goal versus Peru, so they didn't need to do a playoff from the South American groups. Uh, their manager, Ballardo, um, has returned them to a more physical style uh, with Maradona on top of that. And uh, Valdano and Maradona are the big hopes for the for the team. 
Bulgaria qualified from a group with France, Yugoslavia and East Germany and they won all their home games. Um, one notable omission from the squad is a young CSKA Sofia prospect, Hristo Stoichkov. There was something about a brawl in the 1985 cup final yeah there was a there was a massive barney after the or in the middle of the 1985 bulgarian cup final between uh, cska and levski and uh christo yeah was a young christo stoichkov was one of the one of the players who was banned for life um as a result of that of that brawl so scandalous was it um obviously that's going to be overturned at some point in the future but um yeah we're, we're missing out on the opportunity to see a, a potentially great player um in his in the first bloom of his his sporting youth, I suppose. And then fourth, the uh, and then uh, South Korea, the other group or the other team in that group, um, they pipped Malaysia in their in their qualifying groups, and then they bet Indonesia and Japan in playoffs. Uh, they had huge attendance at the, the their four games versus Indonesia and Japan, two hundred ninety two thousand. Um, so obviously a huge uh, demand, or obviously a huge following. There is it their first World Cup, I think, in thirty years, Dave. 32 years yeah yeah um, and they, yes their standout player as you mentioned is um, Chab Omkun of, of Leverkusen so moving on to group B yeah it's uh, Mexico Belgium Iraq and Paraguay um, so the hosts Mexico obviously are, mar- are managed by the uh, the great Yugoslavian at the time football Bora Milutinovic who had um, who I, I think had moved to uh, moved to Mexico as a player, um, as with a lot of the a lot of the teams in the in the competition. Almost everybody's based in Mexico, uh, with the exception of Hugo Sanchez, the the, the great striker uh, who was at Real Madrid at the time. Um, then we go with the Belgium. Uh, they missed out on automatic qualification uh, on goals scored due to a two 0 defeat in Albania. Uh, they beat the Netherlands, their near neighbours, in a playoff on away goals. Um, I suppose their star player coming into the tournament was, was Enzo Schifo, one of the you know one of the stars of European football at the time, one of the most mercurial talents, I suppose you, it would be the word you'd use. Uh, so it's setting up to be uh, an exciting battle between themselves and the Mexicans in terms of star players. Um, Paraguay came in actually um, in a good bit of form, having finished second to Brazil in their group in South American qualifying. And then they beat Colombia, who missed out on the tournament completely uh, after having expected to host it as they as they uh, overcame the four two in the playoffs. Um, one interesting name in the Paraguay squad is Rolando Chilaver, who I think the name Chilaver uh, will be synonymous with goal- with uh, goalkeepers who take free kicks and penalties. And uh, finally, there is a Iraq who I don't think we're expected to do an awful lot. They're ma- managed by the Brazilian Evaristo de Macedo, uh, all based in Iraq. And um, I, I'm i not ashamed to tell you that I don't recognise any of the players. They played most of their home games in Kuwait um, for the qualifiers, and they have an Irish medic. That's right, yeah. In fact, the, the former Dublin GAA player, Pat O'Neill, is the Iraq team doctor. Group C, really interesting one. On on the face of it, quite a strong one. Um, France are the reigning European champions. Um, they beat Yugoslavia 2-0 in their final qualifier to make it through. This is the the classic French team of Platini, Fernandez, Tigana, Gires, um, that obviously had won the European Championships in such style in 1984. Uh, interesting character in the squad is, is goalkeeper Joel Batz. Uh, he'd not long earlier recorded an album called Keeper of Your Nights, 
um, after recovering from cancer, he took up writing and, and poetry and, and music. Uh, it's pretty generic 80s synth ballad stuff. Um, but yeah, good on him for, for getting it out there. Yeah, Canada were a very surprise um, packaging in qualifying. It, it was really, it was really kind of circumstances that got them through. Um, Mexico obviously qualified automatically. Uh, Mexico, who would be the strongest country in the in the Concacaf region, uh, and the US were eliminated um, to everyone's surprise in in round one of qualifying. So that left the field clear pretty much for Canada. Uh, very interesting kind of Irish connections here. The former UCD stalwart Dave Norman is in the, the Canada squad for the World Cup uh, alongside Terry Moore of Glentoran who was born in Canada but grew up obviously in, in Northern Ireland uh, and Sean Lowther who's also in the squad and um, played for UCD himself alongside Norman. Uh, so yeah, not too many World Cup squads before or since have had that degree of of connection to the League of Ireland, including Irish squads, <laughs> frankly. Um, Canada really devastated by the collapse of the, the North American Soccer League, so their players are, are scattered here, there and everywhere, everywhere. so it'll be interesting to see how they get on in this company. Um, next up was obviously the USSR, um, had a very mixed record in qualifying. They were in Ireland's group. Uh, they began with a defeat at Lansdowne Road, but uh, they saw Ireland off with a 2-0 win in Moscow and that effectively finished off Ireland's hopes and uh, own hands reign as well. This was a squad that was heavily based around the, the all-conquering Dynamo Kiev uh, team of the, of, the, of the time. Their coach, Valery Lobanovsky, had just taken over from Malafeyev um, in May uh, after Dynamo won the Cup Winners' Cup. So it didn't happen a lot of the time that a, that a, a coach would be, would be sacked having qualified. Uh, but the thinking there was, I suppose, to reflect the the dominance of of Dinamo players in in the USSR team. Um, this is is really a a largely Ukrainian squad. Fifteen of the twenty two man um squad are Ukrainians, with the rest being Russians. And I think there's a Georgian in there as well. So yeah, obviously, without getting into the politics of it, it's it's kind of kind of tragic. But look at them competing under the under the same flag and um, given that those three countries obviously there's a huge amount of enmity and and um, bloodshed between them at the moment uh, over the past few years um, Dinamo were really on top of the world they they just beaten Atletico Madrid 3-0 in Lyon to win the Cup Runners Cup uh, at more or less the same time that the Chernobyl disaster was happening um, in U or affecting Ukraine and Belarus and, and a huge part of Europe. As unease about our own preparedness to deal with nuclear disasters grew yesterday with the admission by the head of the Nuclear Energy Board, Dr Noel Nolan, that his is a Cinderella outfit. A leading Soviet scientist gave an assurance that all danger from Chernobyl, to use his words, is over. Mr Yevgeny Velikov, Vice President of the Soviet Academy of Sciences, said that until yesterday there had been a theoretical possibility of catastrophe because a large amount of fuel and graphite in the reactor was overheated. Now he said that possibility is no more. The Soviet squad were sick and tired of being asked questions about Chernobyl, um, <laughs> given the fact that they were abroad when it actually, it actually happened um, and didn't seem to affect their preparations at all. Um, and then rounding out the teams in Group C was um, Hungary. 
Uh, very impressive in the qualifiers, had won all their games um, except a home defeat to the Netherlands when they'd already qualified. Uh, they were the first team to qualify on the field uh, from Europe and their star man was Leos Ditari who would have been very familiar to, to Rovers fans. He'd scored a couple of goals at Glenmalure Park in the UEFA Cup the previous October. So that's uh, Group C. Group D, one of the trickier ones. You had Brazil, who had a, um, a comfortable enough but but largely unimpressive uh, qualifying. Eamon has uh, has uh, questioned whether um, their their kind of stars are now, um, as he calls them, richer, wearier, and more injury prone than they were four years earlier. He laments the um, the need for Brazilians, Brazil's best players, to uh, to have to go to Europe and, and make money uh, rather than stay stay back home and prepare for a World Cup. So yes, those players, Zico, Socrates, Falcao, obviously all, all superstars, but uh, over 30 at this point. So not hugely tipped uh, Brazil, but always dangerous, obviously. Um, Spain also in that group. They were the beaten finalists in Euro 84. And the Spanish game in general is in rude health at this point. Uh, they, they've, had, they've been finalists in all three of the European club competitions. Real Madrid just won the UEFA Cup. Um, as I said, there were 84, Euro 84 finalists. Uh, they've got a strong team featuring Zuba Zareta, Camacho, Goicochea, Butragueno, Michel. Um, they had a mixed enough uh, run in the qualifiers. They were well beaten away in Wales and Scotland, but um, they bet Iceland twice. They bet, bet them twice 2-1, in fact, after going behind in both games. Northern Ireland, also in this group, uh, they were a bogey team for Spain in 82. Uh, they bet Spain on home soil at that World Cup and they would meet again in the uh, the group here. They've got Pat Jennings, now 40. Uh, they've got Billy Hamilton, Sammy McElroy, Jimmy Nickel, and uh, still Billy Bingham at the helm there. Um, and they got through a tough group to get there. In fact, they, they bet um, Romania a couple of times and... Um, they sealed their place with a nil-nil draw at Wembley. There was there was allegations of a stitch-up, um, even though Jennings uh, played a great game that day. And a final word from the man who was the, the hero in the centre of defence, Alan MacDonald. 13 heroes out there. Well, everyone was brilliant. And anyone who says that's a fix can come and see me and I'll tell them it wasn't a fix because we bloody earned that. And anyone who says different is a joke. Um, Algeria make up the group as well. They won uh, three ties against Angola, Z- Angola Zambia and Tunisia. To qualify, uh, they've got um, two of the best players in Africa in Majer and Balumi, and uh, they're the first African team to play successive World Cups um, after being stitched up by West Germany and Austria in '82. Uh, the manager, Rabah Sadan, on his second of five spells in charge of Algeria. So um, I think uh, if if we do have a group of death or something approximating, it's certainly the the neutrals idea of a of a very close group would be uh, Group E with West Germany as they were then, um, Denmark, Uruguay who Ireland had obviously played shortly before, and Scotland who went into the tournament with a lot of confidence even though they had recently lost uh, their legendary coach Jockstein to uh, a sudden heart attack. Um, Alex Ferguson, who uh, we might hear more about later, took took charge of the team for the tournament um, and they went in with a lot of confidence just looking through their squad you know they had the likes of Graeme Souness Morris Malpas Gordon Strachan Paul McStay 
uh, Frank McAvenny up front, Charlie Nicholas, obviously. You know, a lot of a lot of uh, I suppose a lot of talent in there, and a, a few players are left out. I know Keddie Daglish was controversially left out, so they're an awful lot of talent to to call on, and uh, they went into it with a lot of confidence. Um, so to a Denmark team who are very much on the up. Um, you know, there would have been a lot of, of English-based players in the team as well, the likes of John Sipabek and uh, and Jesper Olsen, the Man United, Jan Mulvey of, of Liverpool. So a lot of players would have been familiar to our, to Irish fans. Obviously, the star of their team would have been Michael Laudrup, and uh, it's, I suppose for them it was very much a, a you know a tournament where they were looking to make a real impact uh, on the world stage. So they were also joined by Uruguay, who I mentioned um, drew 1-1 with Ireland on their European tour coming into the the tournament and finally in that group is West Germany who I don't think an awful lot was expected of even though they had they had reached the uh, the semi-finals of of the previous World Cup they they went out early early enough in Euro 84 obviously the legendary Franz Beckenbauer had taken over but we really we really wouldn't know an awful lot about his uh his managerial ability um but they still had a huge amount of talent in the team like Karl-Heinz Rummenigge uh Lothar Matthäus who was just kind of hitting his peak, Rudy Voller, uh, you know, a huge amount of talent as the as the West, or just the Germans as they are now, uh, have always had, and uh, it would be interesting to see how they cope with uh, a very, I suppose, a very competitive group. You mentioned Jock Steen's death. He died on on, on the treatment table, uh, in the dressing room, um, so that must have had a huge impact on a, on the team. It's it's really actually harrowing looking back at some of the stuff that's come out since around uh, what happened that night at, at Nuneham Park. Obviously, he, he collapsed during the game uh, and was carried into the dressing room. As uh, you know, that weird situation where there were celebrations on the field, but you know, inside the the manager was was effectively his, his life was coming to an end. They thought they'd saved him at one point, but um, yeah, it was I believe a, a pulmonary edema was the actual the actual cause of death. And the celebrations are more with Scotland than anybody else. Jock Steen being carried off there. Maybe Jock has been overcome by it all. It looked to me as though Jock Steen was being carried off there by the police. Maybe but it's been a night of fantastic tension. I mean, this, the excitement for, for people who are not committed to the game has, has been tremendous. So for somebody such as the manager, uh, tremendous strain on them. Yeah, he'd been just visibly unwell um, throughout the game. He didn't want to take his his diuretics, which is what was kind of keeping keeping the edema at, at bay. Um, because he obviously didn't want to be back and forth to the bathroom during the game itself or, or in the run up to it. Um, and yeah, he'd. I understand he's um, had a bit of a set too with with Gordon Strachan at half time. Alex Ferguson, who was assisting Steen at this time. Um, actually took Strachan aside and said look I know I know you've had a bit of a an argy bargy and I know your character but the man is clearly unwell um just step away and leave it which which Strachan did so yeah it was it was one of those things that while it was it was shocking in in, in one way it wasn't to a lot of the people who were on the inside because he was so he was so clearly um so clearly and desperately unwell oh, very sad but um and they marched to the World Cup with uh, with Ferguson at the helm, and as you said, we will hear be hearing more about him shortly. Uh, Group F was that yourself, Turlock? 
Group F, England are under Bobby Robson at this point. Um, they qualified, the, England had failed to qualify in 74 and 78, um, but they absolutely blitzed their, their qualifying campaign. Um, in a way, they'd won four, they won four of their eight games, but they drew the other four. Uh, they had two enormous wins over Turkey, who were a real pushover in international football at this time. They won 8-0 away against Turkey and 5-0 at home. And England has scored! And suddenly Woodcock's on his way, and it's the second goal for England. And it's there! Number four! Yes! It's number five! For Robson, who's onside and gets his hat-trick again for Woodcock. And it's another one! I don't believe it, it's seven now! Well, and it's Viv Anderson who gets the goal. And England go up to eight. Portugal qualified as well. They qualified partly through a what was a legendary away win against West Germany. I think for years and years and years this was the only home qualifier that West Germany had ever lost. Um, so they've been semi-finalists at Euro '84. Um, their their one, number one and number two goalkeepers have a combined age of 75. So there's quite a lot of experience uh, between the posts there. Um, but on the eve of the tournaments. Portugal have their own kind of saipan. Um, it's called the the Saltillo affair. So the Portuguese FA is accused of being obsessed with with high altitude training for Mexico and also with forcing players to do kind of unpaid ads for various brands. Um, that perennial uh, Roy Keane bugbear providing substandard training pitches and arranging kind of farcical warm up games against teams of of local workmen. Um, and the players' wives are also incensed by rumours of, of infidelity and various shenanigans of that type um, in the camp. Um, the players ultimately go on strike but receive very little sympathy from the public. So there's not great um, not great vibes in that camp heading into the into the tournament itself. Um, Poland's kind of are are the I guess the the third strongest team uh, in this group. They won a pretty low quality group with Belgium, Albania, and Greece. Um, they they made it through with a nil nil draw against Belgium, who went to the playoffs. Um, Boniek of Juventus is is the star turn here, and then finally we have Morocco. So in qualifying, they'd seed off uh, Sierra Leone, Malawi, Egypt, and Libya in in four two legged knockout games. So that's. That's kind of some level to be performing at, um, some level of, of tension to be performing at for, for so long, but they'd only conceded one goal in the entire in the entire qualifying tournament. The midfielder Mohamed Tamouni of FAR Rabat is the reigning African player of the year, but he's still recovering from the effects of a broken leg, so it remains to be seen how much influence he'll have uh, in the tournament back home see what's occupying Irish minds other than the the rise of Stockton's wing of course uh, firm favourites of the pod so we touched on it before but the um, the forthcoming vote on the 10th amendment to the constitution the divorce bill of 1986 uh, is coming up uh, what's going on on that front Turlock? Yeah well obviously women's groups and others had been kind of pressing for a referendum on divorce which was, was totally outlawed in Ireland um, for years but now there's, there's finally some movement uh, on the government side um, there's a bill brought forward by Mervyn Taylor the uh, Labour Minister in the Fine Gael Labour government now Taylor himself has always been very consistent on this issue but I would say that you know, bear in mind that this was a, a Fine Gael Labour government that was enacting pretty brutal austerity and, and needed a win to keep um, keep Labour's progressive supporters online. Uh, I don't know if that sounds familiar at all, but that was already going on in 1986. So um, 
we had the referendum fixed for June 26, so just at the, at the climax of the World Cup. Uh, early polling looks very good for the S side. Um, it has a 12-point lead in some of the polls. Um, we might just put in here a few clips from that just show the extraordinary power of two institutions in Irish society at the time, the Catholic Church and the Late Late Show. The Catholic hierarchy's delegation to meet the Taoiseach Dr Fitzgerald and the Minister for Justice Mr Jukes at government buildings was headed by Cardinal Camoso Fee. But we were dealing today particularly with what we would look upon as the uh, harmful influences of divorce on, let's say, uh, the moral well-being of the people. In just over half an hour, over 600,000 households are expected to tune in here to Studio One for tonight's special Late Late Show on Divorce. The programme is being seen by many as crucial to the outcome of next Thursday's referendum. Both sides believe that it may influence some voters who have yet to make up their minds on the issue. The special programme, which runs for just over two and a quarter hours, will have a courtroom setting. And furthermore, it is they who call the witnesses on either side. Not RTE, not The Late Late Show, not Gay Byrne. Council call the witnesses on either side in order to present the case as best they can. Hotly debated, obviously, but ultimately it will be decided at the ballot box, not on The Late Late Show. Shock horror. Uh, we'll be checking back at that as the tournament comes to a conclusion later. Uh, that Labour TD, actually, that wasn't his only bill of, of that summer. He was busy, Mervyn Taylor. He had another bill about video nasties, uh, which seemed to be it seemed to be a bit of a catch-all term at the time for um, ultra-violent kind of films, like uh, exploitative kind of films, I suppose. There'd be pornography thrown in there as well. There'd also just be uh, horror films like Nightmare on Elm Street and, and The Evil Dead. Yeah, this was a moral panic that had really just been imported from from the UK, from Mary Whitehouse and various figures like that. It was extraordinary some of the stuff that got that got banned and confiscated under the under the video nasties scare. Uh, stuff like, for example, as you said, The Evil Dead, which is a pretty tame film, really, particularly by by modern standards. But I think this reached its reached its lowest point when the, the Tory MP who was uh, putting forward this great um, campaign against video nasty said he was he was concerned at the effects of video nasties not just on children but also on dogs that vi- <laughs> viewing these films could make dogs more violent. I believe that uh, research is taking place and it will show that these films not only affect young people but I believe they affect dogs as well. Um, so that was the tone of the, debate that, of the debate that was being imported from the UK. It wouldn't be like the UK to import their or export their moral panics to us. I'm sure it'll never Absolutely. happen again. Yeah. Not at all. <laughs> Barry McGuigan, we mentioned in other episodes, uh, is flying high at the time. He had beaten Eusebio Pedrosa at Loftus Road to become the uh, WBA featherweight champion of the world in 1985. The result... A unanimous decision. Barry McGuigan is the champion of the world. They've all voted for him, and all twenty-five thousand people in the stadium had already voted for him. Yeah, I think this was very much the the beginning of Ireland's real love affair with boxing, and and it kind of McGuigan maybe maybe pushed down that door, and he was probably the biggest Irish sports star in the world at this time, you know, going into it and took on the journeyman, I suppose you call him, Steve Cruz. 
and that will coincide with the World Cup and maybe we can come back to that uh, when it yeah. happens. He was meant to be fighting uh, Souza, the Argentinian, but he he pulled out with, a, with an eye injury that would kind of end his career. So as you say, Steve Cruz very much... Um, very much really just a, just a, expected to be a punching bag for, for McGuigan to, to break America at Caesars Palace in, in Las Vegas and really cement his reputation on, on the other side of the Atlantic. So a very anticipated fight, but little doubt about what the outcome is expected to be. Elsewhere, Bob Geldof has been knighted, um, but he will not be called Sir Bob Geldof. He's not a British citizen, so he will be called he'll be called Mr. Bob Geldof KBE but he can always take the Sir Bob Geldof if he if he elects to take the British citizenship at some point uh, what else have we got going on there's uh, something strange going on in the Dublin mountains Sherlock a few a few kind of hikers have been extremely disturbed as you would be by, by finding images of mutilated skulls and children with skulls superimposed on their faces uh, in isolated woodland uh, in the in the Dublin mountains, you can imagine how how terrifying it would be to come across uh, that stuff. Um, there was also kind of human figures, um, possibly real skeletons. People felt felt with their heads bludgeoned and their hands uh, dismembered. Um, eventually, we do get to the bottom of of what's going on here. It's not, fortunately, Ireland's first serial killer uh, leaving his calling his calling cards around the Dublin mountains it is in fact the work of a student at NCAD called uh, Garoge Dolan um, and he winds up um, having to defend his reputation on the Pat Kenny radio show um, he says all the pictures are of him himself uh, so he hasn't been exploiting anyone he says I don't really believe that it could frighten people that much I can't believe that anyone could get totally immersed in the fantasy. A student as well that has been, uh, the Indo has des- described as an artist in inverted commas <laughs> and printed a quite a large picture of his face and his name and where he goes to, <laughs> to college. Yeah. People always think that that's an insult. Like you see it with Canadians too, like quote unquote comedians. And like, even if you're a bad comedian, you're still a comedian. Like. <laughs> yeah. But that wasn't the only terrifying thing happening in in Dublin in June of 1986 uh, Cleary's which was at the time the top department stores in, in, in Dublin uh, very much in limbo at the moment as we speak in 2022 but um, the the union the, the ITGWU um, have intervened to protect their members from spooky goings on there's a lot of Cleary's employees are refusing to enter a storeroom unaccompanied um, because of in the Roland Cartier store um, because of some very strange things they've seen and heard. Workers have reported feeling something eerie brushing past them uh, and seeing elderly figures in dark old-fashioned clothes uh, wandering around the, the store after dark and upon being told sorry we're closed the object disappeared so that's a very very mannerly ghost I must say um, there is ultimately a a psychic, I believe, brought in to, to attempt to resolve this. Uh, but whether it's the psychics doing or not, uh, the issue goes away. There's also the uh, unfortunate story of a 19-year-old young man uh, going to get his hair bleached in uh, North Strand. But uh, it didn't come out. Uh, but A, it didn't come out the colour he wanted. He's described as a, an orange man in the headline here. Reluctant orange man sues. And uh, he basically his his uh, smoke started coming out of the back of his head, and he eventually needed surgery to uh, to sort out 
not the orangey blonde hair, but some of the burns on his head. But um, he got his day in court anyway and, and got a thousand pounds for it. Anything else grabbing your attention? Yeah, we've previously spoken about Californian elections on this show when, when Clint Eastwood was elected mayor of Carmel. But I have an even more uh, intriguing one because San Mateo County has overwhelmingly re-elected the former Cavan footballer Brendan Maguire as its sheriff, even though he's been dead for more than a month. Um, so the election had been postponed until August, but the state Supreme Court said it had to go ahead with the names on on the ballot as submitted, uh, and that meant Mr Maguire, who sadly had, had passed away, um, because the filing deadline had passed, the ballot stayed as it was, uh, and voters came out and and voted for the late Mr. Maguire to be their to be their sheriff. Safe to say, the democratic process is uh, alive and well and and working very functionally in the U.S. Uh, as hopefully it is in Ireland with the uh, the divorce and video nasties bills coming up. Uh, right, let's uh, let's get on with the football then. Um, after an opening ceremony, which the BBC's Barry Davies took a little bit too seriously, and with what they call here pinata. They look a little bit like octopuses, and they are part of a children's game. Usually the children are blindfolded, and they hit these things. You can just see them at the top of the picture, and out of them, if they make a good contact, Paul Sweets. Okay, so we'll run through the first two rounds of matches in each group for you. We'll rattle through them. Hello, this is the voice of the Grandstand Vidi printer. I've been brought out of storage to guide you through the results of Mexico, 86. You may recognize me from all those robocalls last year. Don't judge me, Des Lynam stopped picking up in 1999. Let's start with Group A, Bulgaria, 1. Italy, 1. Alto Belli put Italy ahead uh, before a late Sirakov header, uh, lovely header actually, um, into the bottom corner if I recall correctly. Argentina, 3. South Korea, 1. Maradona involved in all three goals. I think if if they weren't if he didn't assist all three, then he was he was the creator of all three. Um, so very good start to the tournament for Maradona. One consolation there for uh, Park Chang Sun for South Korea. Italy one, Argentina one. Mamma mia, it's a stalemate. Another another goal for um, Altobelli. Uh, it was a penalty this time, fairly dodgy looking handball, and then Maradona equalised uh, later on in the game. That was a one-all, which both teams seemed quite happy with in the second half. There was a bit of booing going on because it wasn't, uh, wasn't, didn't set the world alight that second half. South Korea, 1. Bulgaria, 1. Get off lob the first, Kim Jong-boo equalised, if you're wondering. Do you still have the pools? Are the two Ronnies still on TV? That game was, was uh, in a downpour in Mexico City, so uh, they did well to even get 90 minutes played and get a fixture out of that. So that was the first two rounds of games in Group A. Group B? Mexico, 2. Belgium, 1. Turned out to be a fairly comfortable win for, for Mexico. Uh, Fernando Criarte scored a diving header midway through the first half, and then Hugo Sanchez, five minutes before halftime, scored a very typical Hugo Sanchez goal. Erwin uh, Vandenberg pulled one back for Belgium right in the stroke at half time but uh, Belgium were poor and Mexico really really coasted the victory in uh, in hot conditions Paraguay 1 Iraq 0 
And it was a goal from Romero just before halftime, Julio Romero, and that separated the two sides. Mexico, one. Paraguay, one. That's a draw on your pools coupon. Luis Flores put Mexico in front within three minutes, but then that man Romero again equalised five minutes from time. So that was a stalemate and left Mexico still on top of the group on a goal scored. Iraq, one. Belgium, two. Away win. Away win a manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. Error, 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 error. Sorry, Enzo Schifo and Nicolas Klassen um, put Belgium 2-0 up within the first uh, 20 minutes. The second goal there was a penalty. And despite Iraq pulling one back through Ahmed Radi uh, just on the arrow mark, um, they were defeated. Group C now. France, USSR, Hungary and Canada. Game 1, France, 1. Canada, 0. Very laboured win for the French. Um, they only get the, the winning goal in a 1-0 win. 11 minutes from time um, and this goal was scored pretty opportunistic close range goal by Jean-Pierre Papa who I have to be honest I had no idea was in the 86 squad and um, a player I very much associate with sort of the early to mid 90s I had no idea he was a, he was an international at this point he certainly unrecognizable in his in his bowl cut as he as he uh, bundles the ball over the line for that 1-0 win I'll tell you the, the hairstyles in general at, at 86 uh, Turlock were fantastic there's serious haircuts all around every team representing very well yeah we're kind of at the at the intersection I guess of uh, new wave and hair rock at this point so that's very much reflected in the in the hairstyles um, fair bit of mulletage going on uh, a lot of perms and just yeah Pretty exotic all round. My brother played with the Pet Shop Boys, you know. He was the synthesizer on West End Girls. The actual synthesizer. Anyway, the next game finished. USSR, 6. Yes, that's 6 with an X. Hungary, nil. All those late changes had persuaded most of the media that the Soviet Union would be also rounds at the finals. The style and power of this 6-0 victory suggested quite the reverse. France, 1. USSR, 1. Uh, Vasily Ratz scores an absolutely stunning long-range goal uh, to equalise a Fernandez um, finish after a, after a neat move. So this is a one-all draw. And uh, yeah, both those teams looking good for, for long runs in the tournaments. Hungary, 2. Canada, 0. Do you want to hear my Canadian accent? Oh boy, we're pretty much out of this to ornament, eh? First game in Group D was Brazil-Spain. It ended 1-0. Uh, there was a headed goal from Socrates that uh, won that one. It was a rebound, I think. It was a really good save or came off the crossbar. There was a goal missed in the game earlier for Spain. Uh, Michel had a shot that crossed the line um, but after it in the crossbar, but it uh, wasn't given. And the ref, Bambridge... Uh, that was the end of his tournament as a result. There were some issues with the TV coverage as well in this game, Terlock. Yeah, there'd been huge issues with the TV coverage in the, in the early few days of the tournament to the extent that the TV companies were suggesting putting the tournament on hold for 48 hours while the problems were were sorted out. ITV actually lost their commentary entirely on this game and, and Brian Moore had to commentate from the studio and then RTE had to take Brian Moore's commentary from the studio and relay it to viewers in Ireland. So 
uh, less than ideal. I guess we kind of take seamless um, transcontinental broadcasting for for granted these days. But uh, these were still relatively early days for the for you know massive live broadcasts going worldwide and and uh, yeah the the difficulty of that of that feat was showing in the early days of the, tur of the tournament. At the moment, nobody in the world is at this moment getting pictures out of Mexico. You can be sure then that we've got our fingers very firmly crossed that that changes. Northern Ireland, one. Algeria, one. Whiteside uh, cracked in a, a free kick. It was kind of deflected on the way in um, from just outside the box. And uh, Northern Ireland missed, missed their chances then at 1-0. They had a chance to go on and win, but then a, um, a similar kind of free kick in the second half for Algeria got the equaliser uh, for Zidane. No relation to uh, Zinedine. And yeah, a fair result there, the draw in that one. Both teams were, were fairly sloppy um, and they did really need to win if they were to have a chance of getting out of that group. Brazil won. Algeria nil. That goal was shocking, actually. Uh, a cross went past three defenders, and Kareka snuck in at the far post after, um, yeah, after the balls inexplicably got right across three defenders in the box. Spain two, Northern Ireland one. Spain didn't want a repeat of what happened four years earlier on home soil, when Northern Ireland bet them, and they um, were very fast out of the traps in this game. Uh, Butragueno fired home in the first minute Salinas added a second uh, on 18 minutes there was some very bad defending there Billy Bingham was Billy Bingham had awful things to say about his defence for that second goal um, there was some very bad defending from Spain then in the second half somehow a Spanish defender and the keeper um, couldn't manage to clear a ball and Clark nipped in for a, a header to bring it back to 2-1 but that was as far as Northern Ireland could get in that game Um Clark was then, I think, a Bournemouth player, but there was talk of him going to Torino, um, but he ended up going to Southampton. Um, Northern Ireland were, were pushing for an equaliser towards the end of that game, but that was that was the end of it. And Pat Jennings, of course, uh, gave a very good account of himself in that game, as usual. Now it is time for death. The group of death. Group E, match day one, Uruguay, one. West Germany, one. A very scrappy game. Um... And West Germany were lucky to get out of it with anything. Uh, Uruguay took the lead very early on with a, a scrappy goal. Um, Antonio Alzamendi broke through. Uh, he probably could have gone down twice as he was hacked from behind by a defender and then keeper Schumacher almost uh, took him out as well, but he, he kept his cool and finished in off the bar. Uh, West Germany did come into to it. Uh, Lothar Mateus hit the bar with a, a long ranger um, in the second half before... Um, Klaus Alofs, uh, one of the other strikers, he uh, bundled home a late equaliser. Scotland, nil. Denmark, one. Scotland really put it up to them and it, it was only really uh, around the arrow mark that um, Denmark uh, striker Peberan Elkjar um, of Verona, who had fired Verona just uh, very recently to their only ever Serie A title, he broke through and finished well. Uh, Roy Aiken had a goal ruled out for offside, but... No buts, Dave. It's a big boys game at this level. West Germany, 2. Scotland, 1. Oh dearie, dearie me. Um, Scotland do. Uh, I suppose they, there is a reaction from them. Um, they go 1-0 up in the first half through Gordon Strachan. A, a really nicely taken finish at the near post. And Goff, and Aiken and Strachan. 
have taken the lead. Gordon Strachan. After 18 minutes, he got his shot in there at the near post past Schumacher. Whether the defender slightly deflected it or confused the keeper, but it went between Schumacher and the near post, and Gordon Strachan has put Scotland ahead to the delight of their supporters here in Carretero and indeed at home. And I suppose there's a comical moment afterwards where he tries to hop over the advertising horn and very quickly realises that he doesn't have the height to do it and just uh, kind of strikes a pose instead. West Germany do actually equalise uh, through Rudy Voller not long after as he, um, I suppose, uh, turns the ball home at the back post. And uh, again, Alofs is the man with the winner uh, early in the second half as Scotland are again wasteful. And it's going to... With two defeats, it's looking unlikely at this point they can even salvage third place. Denmark, 6. Uruguay, 1. Even all these decades later, I didn't see that one coming. But then I've never really recovered from the Y2K bug. Uh, in, a, in an example of what I would call heroic um, commitment to bad deeds, um, Miguel Bossio, the midfielder, got himself sent off for two yellow cards after just 19 minutes. And this wasn't just for two bad tackles. This was for six or seven at this point as they just basically went out to brutalise the Danish team as much as possible. But um, it really didn't work. Uh, Elkir scored a hat-trick. Um, uh, Denmark were 2-0 up at halftime. Um, Soren Lerby added a second. Uh, Michael Laudrup added a third early in the second half. Two more from Elkir and then Jesper... Janssen, uh, the only real response was just before halftime, Francesco Lee put on a penalty, but they were never really in the game, even with 11 men, so Denmark march on to the, to, the, um, to, the, to the second round, and Uruguay have an awful lot of work to do now. I'd say Denmark were fairly well tipped at that point after that drubbing of Uruguay. Uh, it was very obvious the talent that they had in their team, the players uh, playing all around Europe, not just in England, but in, in uh, Spain and in, in Germany as well, so I think, uh, yeah, exactly. People, they they took note of that 6-1 and it's kind of, uh, you know, maybe similar to the USSR. They're kind of thinking, you know, uh, what are we up against here? Let's see who puts the F in Group F. Morocco, nil. Poland, nil. Uh, Morocco have the better of the game, but it's it's desperately dull. Um, It ends nil-nil. Poland hit the post uh, late on, so they will probably see that as, as a point dropped. England, nil. Portugal, one. Blimey, governor. That's a ripe rum rollicking and no mistake in it. I'm sorry, my programmer was born in 1929. England line out classic 4-4-2 with, with Hoddle and Waddle out wide. Uh, recording stars Hoddle and Waddle, as we've, as we've mentioned with their... With their classic uh, 80s tune, um, Diamond Lights. But they can't help England to a win. Um, England miss an awful lot of chances through Haitley and Lineker. Uh, but then they're absolutely shocked by Carlos Manuel's 75 minute, 75th minute goal on the breakaway. Diamantino. Carlos Manuel is in the centre. Diamantino. Carlos Manuel! Portugal have scored number six, Carlos Manuel, in the 75th minute. And it was Diamantino who got ahead of Sansom. Carlos Manuel absolutely unattended. Three defenders and children unable to get it out. And um, he mishits it so badly that the keeper can't get anywhere near it. 
and this is a, a shock result Portugal possibly the weakest of the European qualifiers um, England tipped certainly by their own media to go deep in the tournament um, and the pressure is really on them now uh, Brian Robson their captain um, is carrying a very very heavy shoulder injury and uh, he's carrying himself quite gingerly throughout the game the preoccupation of the English media is whether he's going to whether his shoulder is going to hold together long enough to lead them to victory uh, but that might not even be an option because the second game England Morocco whoa hold your horses fella that's my job England nil Morocco nil takes place in, in in stifling heat but the game is really dominated by England losing two key players and um, Brian Robson goes up for a header lands heavily uh, that shoulder pops out he's clearly in 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 desperate pain and um, he's taken off and then just moments after that Ray Wilkins, who's kind of England's other talisman in midfield, he gets a second yellow card for petulantly throwing the ball at the Paraguayan referee. I think Hodge's presence, and he'll be a hungry Hodge, he's bright and breezy and he's not frightened to join in attacks and get beyond the front players. I think it could be to our advantage. Waddle, I'm sure, will come over on the right-hand side. I have to cut you short there, David, because Ray Wilkins has been sent off. His second bookable offence and it's problems upon problems for England. An extraordinary lapse from a very experienced player. England can't convert any of that pressure into goals. Finishes England nil, Morocco nil, and as you can imagine, the manager and the players getting absolutely slated and slaughtered. England are, are facing down the barrel of, of elimination at the group stage if they can't turn their fortunes on their head um, in the final game against Poland. Poland, Portugal. Lot of peas. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. Poland, one. Portugal, nil. There's more turmoil in the Portuguese camp here. Uh, first choice goalkeeper Manuel Bento breaks his leg while playing outfield in a training match. Um, so Vitor Damash comes in for him. Stadium's very uh, very sparsely populated for this game. Um, another pretty dull match in, in Group F. Um, Smolarik scores the only goal against the run of play in after 68 minutes. So yeah, that group panning out very unexpectedly with everyone still in with a chance heading into the last round of fixtures. But England very much in danger of, of heading out. They're pulling my plug now. See you in episode 2. So as my memory banks power down, I'm off to dream of my glory days. Reading out scores like East Fife, 4. Forfa, 5. Metropolitan Police, 0. Crooktown, 1. And Sheffield Wednesday versus Abergavenny Thursdays, postponed till Friday. Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer. Thanks for tuning in. Part 2 will be coming soon. Not too soon, but soon. And up yours as well. As well.